Hello and welcome to the Voices from the Land, Indigenous Peoples Talk Language Revitalization Podcast, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Tansi, I'm your host, Gordon Spence from the Tasquia Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba. I'm also the Indigenous Community Facilitator for the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Today I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Andrew Bomberry, a Mohawk from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Andrew is a curriculum developer, writer, researcher, and teacher. Welcome. As part of the Legacy of Hope Foundation's mandate and mission, we are working to promote indigenous language revitalization as a critical step in the healing of generations of survivors and their communities from colonial policies and practices, which robbed indigenous people of their first language. The goal of this project is to help support indigenous language reclamation through interviews with indigenous language teaching experts. The target audience for this work are indigenous language teachers. We hope that by sharing accessible podcasts of interviews with people doing interesting and relevant work on language promotion, we can help facilitate the sharing of knowledge, ideas, and practices that are relevant to the teaching and learning of indigenous languages. While there are many contexts that are particular to specific nations and dialects within their regions, we are hoping to provide additional tools and platforms that can help with indigenous language revitalization despite the many differences. Today, our guest is Michelle K. Johnson. Michelle is a member of the Okanagan Indian Band. She speaks Silich language, which is a Salish language. She is the executive director lead activist and a teacher at the Silic Language House in British Columbia. Silic Language House is a nonprofit charitable society with the express purpose of creating Nisilic, Silic Salish, Salish Okanagan, speakers in the Silic Nation through activities such as recording their fluent elders, forming an empowered speaking community, and running a language nest for toddlers and children with Tikwo, Association. Michelle has a PhD in Indigenous Language Revitalization from the University of British Columbia, where she spearheaded the Language House, model for language revitalization. When not manifesting language, fundraising, or toboganing in Nisislik with toddlers, she can be found hiking, mountain biking, cross-country skiing, and playing guitar. Welcome, Michelle. How are you today? Deacon Hest, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on your program. And thank you for sharing the dream of language fluency across Canada. Before we start, we'd like to do a uh, prayer. And I'm going to ask Andrew to uh, do the prayer through audio. So this is a prayer for the language from Elder Andrew McGuinness. Kulchutna lived Kilskimaski Kumut. Limlet Kulus Halak Nashal Halt. Kultamal Kailusin. Kukan Hitanti. Will Hastik scolded. Will be Pinuntaman Kailfin So welcome, Michelle Johnson. Thank you. Looking forward to speaking with you on these topics. From reading about your work, 
it seems you have a model, a very interesting model called the Language House. And I was hoping you could talk to us a bit about the Language House model that you explored for your PhD. Yes, I hope that what I what I'm able to share will be of of some help to some people who are struggling to revitalize all of our languages. I just want to express my gratitude for the for playing that that elder recording. That's our my dear elder Andrew McGinnis, who recently he passed, and I worked with him for years. And that prayer is very special to my heart because at the beginning of each of my language classes, we all stand up and we say that that prayer, Kuen Kuen Kuna Mist have pity on us. We are working so hard on our, our languages. And so we feel like we're learning from our elders and yet we're also learning directly from recordings. The language house model is a space we created, recognizing that our languages, they can no longer be, we can't revitalize them on evenings and weekends and in our spare time. We need full-time programs. We need to spend our entire working day on language. So the language house, it's a home for language. And at first it actually was a home. Our first one was a home that we rented way out on the reserve where nobody could bother us and nobody knew where we were. So there was five of us, myself and four women, and we studied from a curriculum. And our elder would come once a day and we'd study with her for an hour and a half a day. And for four hours a day, we studied our curriculum and we're continuing the model. And the model basically means we know that in our indigenous languages that are highly complex, it takes upwards of 2000 hours to gain intermediate fluency. So we know we need to create a dedicated space where we study. A lot of what we do in the language house is classroom-based study. And in my particular language house, we are just absolutely lucky because we have this curriculum that was created by the Salish School of Spokane. They created an entire comprehensive beginner to adult, beginner to advanced curriculum that takes about 2000 hours to teach. It's got textbooks, audio files, computer games, graphics, teaching methods, and it's designed to be taught by learners. And as a learner, this is how I became as proficient as I am was by teaching this material for 2000 hours and creating space now for, for my apprentice teachers to be teaching this material to other apprentices and then bringing in elders as much as we can. I think that's the language house model. It's a space. We do adult learning. I also do elder recording. And then lately we partnered with the Tikuti Chayluch Language Nest and that created another container for language with children. It sounds like the house aspect is kind of an ecosystem of the language. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so, because we also go outdoors. We did an outdoor program with the children. We went out and did tobogganing and nature walks. So the, the container just means it's, it's a space we're making, a physical and temporal space. It's immersion is what it is. We're, we're creating a safe space for immersion where we're allowing ourselves to be in immersion we use all the best pedagogical aspects of, of safety and teaching. You know how languages can be very stressful to learn? There's, mm -hmm. there's language tension inherent in, in learning a language. So we imbue our language methods with kindness and safety so that we have a spa safe space to make mistakes. Okay. And so this was a curriculum that you started off with from Spokane, you said? Yeah, that's right. Our good friends, 
Chris Parkin and Larray Wiley and our elder Sam Tietze, Sarah Peterson. They co-wrote the curriculum. It was a, a labor of love over about a 10 year period and they're still writing it. They're still writing the more advanced books. There's currently 12 books in the curriculum and each one takes say a hundred or so hours to teach. Okay, so it's it's very staggered, I guess you could say, like it's very clear the, the route you're going through. Yeah, it, yeah, they call it sequenced. It's a, it's a sequenced laddered curriculum. Each part builds on the part before. Okay, our next question would be about the, the planning. Would you uh, mind talking about just how the Language House does its planning for your different initiatives and, and executing the curriculum? Our planning is an organic process. If it takes a person about 2,000 hours to become fluent, I try to create opportunities for as many people as possible to get 2,000 hours. In my last language house, I created a four-year program, two days a week for four years, six hours a day, which was exhausting. Don't get me wrong. It's exhausting to teach for six hours straight. And it was exhausting for the students as well. But we got through our 1,200 hours in two and four years, and they emerged low to mid-intermediate fluency. And as teachers, myself and my co-teacher, we emerged at high intermediate to low advanced proficiency. So huge success. And I went to each of the chief and councils of all of our member bands and I said, okay, now that we've done this pilot project, I've gotten 12 people through the program. It's humanly possible for us to get 100 people through starting next year because we could do three language houses and have 30 people each, 30, 60, 90. And the chiefs and councils more or less agreed until it push came to shove and we were starting the actual on the ground planning and then they all backed out. So of course that was devastating as a language planner. I went from having 100 students to the only way I can get 100 people through is if I physically fundraise for 100 people to be paid full time. So I backed up and I said, I think I could probably fundraise enough to get 10 people paid full time, which means I have to raise about a million dollars a year. And we work independently from the bands and the tribal councils, although they do provide us with support letters, which we're very grateful for. So the planning is, it's difficult, you know, it reminds me of the words of Daryl Kipp and any other language teachers that are in the activist phases, this will resonate with them. Daryl Kipp said, do not ask for permission to revitalize your languages. Work with the ones who want it because there will be people that will, they will oppose you or they, they will not be ready to put in this amount of work, but there will be those two or three or five or 10 people that, that really want this. So that's my language planning is finding those 10 people and fundraising the million dollars to get us 10 people through before I run out of steam. Cause I only have another couple decades left on the planet. It sounds like a significant hurdle that uh, your language house was faced with early on. I think all of the activists encounter a similar hurdle. I've talked to other language activists and they, they've found the same thing. And I think that's the message from Daryl Kipp is he must have encountered the exact same thing. And that's why he wrote those words. And it's like a trail of breadcrumbs for us to follow that I'm not the only one that is not able to get a hundred people through because of barriers within community. It's happening to all of us and it's, it's not our fault. We're working super hard. And the language, it's so beautiful. 
And it's such good medicine for all of us that I would love to get as many people through as possible. It's not a political thing. I just, I know our languages are healthy for our communities. Mm -hmm. And you had said your planning was organic. And so in what ways do you look for those organic opportunities for the, the planning or taking advantage of organic moments? Now I look for the skills that the people bring to the program. The people, like as Daryl Kipp says, that want to be here. For example, one young woman and her family moved to the Okanagan Territory from Edmonton last year to be part of my program. She moved her entire family just so she could become fluent in the language because this is one of the few, well, this is the only fluency opportunity in our language. So we have meetings with our team members. Well, what skills can we bring together? And another team member has really excellent resources in lateral violence training. So now we're bringing in lateral kindness training into our organization. Mm -hmm. So at first the curriculum, that was our skeleton, that like our framework, our structure. And now we're taking the structure of the curriculum and we're adding on the things that we realize we need. Like we know we, we recognize we need lateral kindness training because lateral violence is endemic in, in its epidemic in First Nations community. And it comes even into the smallest organizations because we're, we're all connected. So we, yeah, the planning is, it's, it's organic because it's myself and the people that are, are drawn to the language planning together. How do we get this curriculum delivered to as many people as possible without having the barriers shut us down? Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that, uh, or I, I gather from what you've said that when you started teaching the language, you were not a fluent speaker. Is that right? Oh yeah, total beginner. I'm 53 now. I started learning the language when I was 40. And okay. we can say that I'm, by my own estimation, I'm, I'm high intermediate. And another colleague says I'm low advanced and we argue about that. He says, are you arguing with me? Yeah, I am. I also did a PhD in language assessment and I say I'm high intermediate because I cannot have a specialized debate in my language of course, there is no opportunity to have a specialized debate in my language, but I know that if there were an opportunity that I would lose, <laughs> I would lose really badly. Go to a band meeting. Right? If they were in the language, absolutely. <laughs> Your band meetings, they don't speak your Aboriginal language or your Indigenous language? No, Gordon, in my territory, there are somewhere around two dozen fluent elders remaining. Well, and they're all around the age of 80. And then there's a couple of handfuls of us younger people. I'm like the middle ground between the elders and the younger people. I try to train much younger people. There's only a couple dozen of us. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of, a lot of communities have, um, are in a similar situation as your community where they've gone away from their language and now they're you know, realizing that they got to do something about it. What was the main cause of uh, the slide of your language of, you know, people kind of forgetting to, to speak it? Oh, it's, it's been the same all over. It, it, through factors that were really nobody's fault, all of our, our grandmothers and grandfathers chose not to speak the language to their children to protect them from the trauma that they've been going through for being Indigenous people, for living through the debilitating effects of colonization. So it's, it's not like people chose 
to let the language go. They were protecting their children. And now this generation that's coming up, we're, we really want to get it back. And it's, it's not like we're passing blame on the elders for not teaching us, but we're recognizing that the elders are not necessarily the best people to teach us currently because there's so few of them. Right. Part of what we do is at the Legacy Hope Foundation is trying to educate the public, I guess in general, about the impacts of residential schools. And uh, what we've heard through some interviews is that the residential schools had some impacts on people losing their languages. And I don't know, did, did, was there, did people from your community go to residential schools? Yeah, most of our elders have attended residential schools. There's a lucky few that didn't attend residential schools. And absolutely, that was a huge tool that the government used to erase our cultures and erase our languages. And our existence here is, it's proof that they didn't succeed but we are, our languages are so close to extinction and that's a measure of how effective those, those really ugly residential school programs were. Right. So you had mentioned that you uh, have studied assessment in part of your PhD program. And I was just wondering if you would speak about the role of assessment and the language revitalization efforts you're involved in. Yeah, I think I was lucky to take a deep dive into assessment during my PhD because now as a teacher and, and just always sort of fighting forwards on the grassroots, cutting edge of language teaching, I don't have to worry so much about assessment because I've studied it very deeply and we have assessment practices built into our, our curriculum. I think a lot of Indigenous programs, from what I read, from what I studied, People have been afraid of doing assessments. They might say assessments are non-Indigenous or we've never assessed, but that's just not true. We've always assessed the quality of what we do. You know, we, our buildings would have fallen down. Our children wouldn't have been raised well. So assessments are, are not an unnatural thing. It's just that if you're not running a program that shows results, your assessments won't show very good results, but we're following this sequenced laddered curriculum that shows results. It's a results-based proven method based on direct acquisition. So I do a quiz every day and it's a part of our routine. When the students arrive, the first thing they do is they, they, they're gonna write a quiz on the material they learned yesterday. And then I have a midterm at regular opportunities and I have a final exam and we do final oral exams, which makes people really nervous. And I film them. They have to tell either a story or a lesson or an entire introduction in the language, depending on which book we're learning. So my students who are currently learning book four, they have to study one of our traditional chapter stories and it'll take them maybe five or 10 minutes to tell this story and they'll, they'll tell it with images, so they'll have visual cues of what's happening in the story. And they'll tell it in their own words, or if they want to, they can just memorize the words. And the assessment process, there's the Canadian language benchmarks, there's American benchmarks, and there's European benchmarks. They're all more or less the same. They're beginner, intermediate, advanced, and each has low, medium, high. So low, medium, high, beginner, low, medium, high, intermediate, low, medium, high, advanced. It takes about 100 hours to get to low beginner, about 500 hours to get to mid beginner, about 1,000 hours to get to low intermediate, 
and about 2,000 hours to get to mid-intermediate. So you notice between low-intermediate and mid-intermediate, it's 1,000 hours. The intermediate phase is large, and we know that going in. So I know going in, I'm not expecting my students, say if they come into my program and they're already high beginner and I train them for another 300 hours, I'm not expecting to see very much because 300 hours of high beginner, you'll probably still be high beginner. You might just be touching it low intermediate. So we, we know going in about how much time it's gonna take and we're pretty strict about if you maintain 80%, then you can progress along to the next book. And that's, um, that's how we just maintain that the students who are learning at a certain level, they're learning with other people of the same level so that they can move forward at the same pace. So if you haven't had the time to maintain 80%, like if you haven't had the time, things come up in your life, you just have to repeat that book and then move along with the next group. What's the failure rate? <laughs> like if you, if you fail your exam, like you gotta repeat the thousand hours? You would just repeat the previous book. So if okay. each book takes about a hundred hours, my four-year program, though, that was difficult because it was the first time I ever taught it. So it was a one-time deal. I didn't know if I'd ever do it again. So I told everyone, just, just please keep up. And there were plenty of people that were failing, and I just let them keep attending as long as they wanted. Because, the, I mean, I can't say take it next time because I didn't know if there would be a next time. And yeah. as truth comes out, I'm not training 100 people right now. I'm only going to train about 10 people that I fundraised for to pay them full time. Right. You had mentioned um, frequent quizzing. I'm guessing that has something to do with strengthening recall and, and fluency, maybe? Yes. You, if you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's review is also a very important part of, of learning language. They say 75% of your time should be spent learning and a good 25% should be spent on a review and quizzing people, believe it or not, it's a form of review because it, it forces people to look over their notes and, you know, five minutes before class, they're flipping through their notes. So it's a review time that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. It's not that I think quizzes themselves are very valuable. It's the review time the student puts into studying for the quiz that's super valuable. So you, it, it buys you a little extra review time. And yeah, like you said, review time is super important. We, we build in 25% of our study, our in-person study time is review time. And then of course they have homework at night. I imagine it also helps them kind of self-check how well do I actually know that thing I thought I knew? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my sort of favorite tricks is to just say, okay, we're just going to cover up, take our vocab page that we might have learned yesterday, cover up the instruction part and just look at the English part. And now we're just going to say from memory what the words are. And the first time I did this, one of my students was like, oh, and she's so embarrassed. But then the next time she was doing it, no problem. Because we sort of, we should be able to think the word in English and then say it in instruction. And a lot of people... We, we do the testing the easy way. We'll, we'll have them test, we'll write out the word in instruction and have them write out the word in English. But that's of no value when you're forming a speaker. If you're forming a speaker, you need to be able to think what you want to think and then say it in the language. So we need to test ourselves, you know, in, in reverse, forward and backwards. And, and I'm guessing it's more of a either low stakes or no stakes quizzing. Like the, the goal is actually the practice of it rather than obsessing over marks. We record the marks 
and we tell everybody they have to maintain 80 percent and okay. that it's an expectation of their of their job of their employment and if they don't maintain 80 percent we find them tutoring and we get them time so good diagnostic also to get the interventions in yeah is that a tpr method what yeah we TPR? do we do use TPR. TPR is total physical response. We use that when we're doing action-based words where we'll stand up and sit down and act out the words. And also when we're practicing songs, we do lots of TPR. That's very effective at beginner levels. So my last question on assessment would be, do you find that students having a sense of their upcoming assessment influences their studies? Like knowing that they got that oral exam or, or whatnot? Yeah, some people are highly motivated by marks and we consider that very helpful because when every now and then a student will come along that is not motivated by marks and it's really hard to make that student thrive when they say, oh, I don't care if I do badly on this, then they often will do badly on this. But if there's most students will say, oh, I don't want to do badly and they get a sense of competition between themselves and their peers and pretty much everybody gets 19 out of 20 on my quizzes. I make them easy. The point is just to do them. So if you study a little bit and if you do it, you're going to get 18 or 19 out of 20. But if you don't study and if you don't do it, then you're not going to pass the course and you're, it's, it's a requirement of your employment. Okay. Thank you. So best practices, Gordon, I think you had a question you wanted to ask for practices. Yeah. I, um, what are the what are some of the best methods when you teach? Uh, like, can you be more specific in terms of what you do when you teach? Uh, what methods you use and what methods are most successful? Yeah, the most effective method is to follow a sequenced curriculum, and I, I can't state that enough. I think we're one of the only languages in Canada that has a sequenced curriculum from beginner to advanced, and it it's really hard to imagine being able to do this without a sequenced curriculum. If you, if you don't have one, then the teacher just has to be a brilliant genius and come up with on the fly what they're gonna do and be assessing the students every minute of the day of what they need to learn now and then remembering in their head what they learned last time. But because we have a sequenced curriculum and it's, it's been tried and tested several times, so it, it, it works. Now that I've taught it through two, two and a half times now, I'm able to modify it somewhat. I'll say, well, there's some things that I really need to stress a little more, some grammar drills right around here, because I found that a little later on, my students are confused about some material that's coming up. So now I, I can see things coming in. I found grammar drills are super effective. Grammar drills. Yeah, uh, unbelievable, right? And uh, learning the stories has been super effective. So at the beginner level, we just, we get through book one. It's, it's vocab and sentences, simple vocab, simple sentences. And then book two, it's all our traditional stories because we love hearing our traditional stories and we sort of want to know what's going on. So they've been written out in a beginner format and we really repeat, repeat, repeat the sentences and we have pictures and we make it fun. So the most effective way of teaching language is to make it a game. We have tons of games. So we'll have fly swatters. You put the words up on the wall and then you have two students come up and you'll say a word. 
well, you'll, they'll have the pictures on the wall and you'll have them hit the picture with the fly swatter and it's a little competition. Who can hit the picture the fastest? And everybody laughs because it's really silly having, you know, your 70-year-old dad playing fly swatters against his, you know, 21-year-old niece and we we have a lot of fun. Or we there's class mixers where I'll pass out the imagery and have them have a guided conversation with the imagery and the, the conversations at beginner level, they have to be light and fun. So we make really fun, silly conversations at the beginner level. Do you like salmon? Oh no, I don't like salmon. Oh, you don't? Oh, that's terrible. It just to be silly and fun. And then when we get to intermediate, we can get really silly and we're inspired by our, our elder Sam Tietze who would come and visit us and, you know, the elders, they just have this beautiful sense of humor where everything's funny. And when you get to intermediate in, in your own language, you were inspired by that. So we try to make everything funny. We try to put like a connotation on everything <laughs> that we can. Yeah. I think as you get older, you get funnier. <laughs> you get, you're, you're, more, you're more relaxed about who you are. And, I wanted to ask you a question about, see, a lot of the people that are, our target audience are Indigenous language teachers. You said something about sequence curriculum. Can you explain what sequence curriculum is? Yeah, I can. And I really encourage other language groups to, to contact me or go to my website or go to the Interior Salish website. And this curriculum is free and you can copy it. I, I actually worked with the Tlingit Nation, they're way up north in the Yukon and um, Alaska. I worked in the Yukon and I helped them basically translate the first two of our textbooks into Tlingit and I showed them how to teach it. So for a little period of time, I could teach beginner Tlingit, even though I can't speak beginner Tlingit at all. I can still remember a few sentences because the method is so effective. And I'm speaking with a few other language groups currently and they're translating this material into their language because the teaching method is it's so safe and fun and repetitive and easy so what all you want to do is go to interiorsalish.com that's where the language curriculum is stored interiorsalish all one word dot com yeah. and you can contact me i'm sure we'll put my contact at the end of this podcast and I, I work at the Seal Language House, and we have a website, which is thelanguagehouse.ca, the language house, all one word. And I have an email that you can click on there. I would be happy. That's my joy in life is to help other groups adopt effective, proven teaching methods so that we can get ahead of our languages and, and not get bogged down by methods that, that might be slow or might not be as effective. Right, that's kind of exactly what we're looking for. Uh, effective best practices, what works, and uh, and best methods of teaching indigenous languages. So, uh, Andrew, do you have any more questions? I really don't have any more questions for her. You probably have a couple more. Earlier, you had mentioned in teaching uh, using a direct acquisition. I was just wondering if you could explain that term a little more. Yeah, it's a term that was coined by some language acquisition researchers, and it's, it's a pretty broad, all-encompassing term. You've heard of TPR. TPR is a type of direct acquisition. Direct acquisition, it takes into account that there's phases of learning. 
when you're learning a language, there's the silent phase and the limited production phase and then the full production phase, the silent phase, also known as the comprehension phase. So when I'm teaching a beginner lesson, the first several exercises, the students aren't expected to say anything. They might say yes or no, or they might repeat a number, or they might point at something. So that's them in their silent phase. So I'm allowing them to be in their silent phase while I'm talking. I'm talking nonstop. I'm, I'm saying, uh, this is a banana. or the, the, I just repeat these phrases over and over. And then they get to their limited production phase where they might have to say, fry bread, and then we get to the full production phase where they're paired up with each other and they ha they're saying, I like fry bread. Do you like fry bread? So that's direct acquisition is going through the phases of learning and mm -hmm. having as much game based material as possible. At the intermediate and advanced levels, it's not as game based, but we have as much games as we can. And what we're finding, even at the, say the intermediate advanced levels, our games are more sort of funny things that involve grammar, but we're starting to find that really fun because that's we're at that level where we're really hungry for the grammar. We want to say everything correctly. So we have a, a thing called drill and kill, which sounds terrible, but if I don't do it, I have a student will say, oh, we didn't do drill and kill yet. And I'm like, oh, I love you for wanting to do this thing that I've had previous students go, oh God, not drill and kill because it's really hard. <laughs> but we're finding it fun because I've made it, I let them see that I'm not an expert at it. I make mistakes. Sometimes I, I struggle or I might pretend to struggle more than I actually am because it makes them feel more comfortable. That mm. we're coming up with this together, how to do these drills and how to speak correctly. And we all want so badly to speak correctly that sometimes we come up with new games on the fly to help each other okay. to practice the really hard stuff. Our grammar is incredibly hard. I'm sure all of your grammars are incredibly hard. I was just going to ask you that, and just trying to read your your names here is like uh, that's really challenging. So that must be, like you said, it's got to be the most one of the most difficult parts of learning your language is the pronunciation, right? The grammar and how to say the words, and you don't have a specialized writing system that people can use. We do have a specialized writing system. We use the International Phonetic Alphabet that was handed down to us, I guess, by the first linguist that came to our territory. So you know how it is when the first linguist comes to the territories in the 70s and he basically assigns you a writing system. I feel lucky because I like the International Phonetic Alphabet. Each mm -hmm. symbol sounds exactly like the sound. So when I'm recording an elder and they're speaking, I can write it out exactly as they say it, and then I can repeat it back to them exactly as they say it, because we have this particular writing system, mm -hmm. and that helps us with our pronunciation, helps us pronounce things perfectly, because it's important to us to not change the language. And yes, the grammar is also very complex. It, it just gets more complex almost every day. Every time I learn something, I learn there's something else that I don't know. Is that the same as the like the English alphabet? Some of it is. Yeah. Like our, our alphabet, the first couple letter, a chi tsa uh, a chi tsa uh, ha is kut kit kup kwap. That's the first part of our alphabet. Okay. Our alphabet has 46 letters, and one of our letters is kru. Uh, if we say the word for elder, kha kha. 
That's a kla and a hap, which I wouldn't expect a beginner to be able to hear. But after two, three hundred hours, you'd be amazed. They're able to produce that. They're able to recognize it. First, they recognize it. Then they produce it. And then after about 400 hours, we'll fine tune their pronunciation because we let them talk like babies for the first three, 400 hours. And then after four or 500 hours, well, it's actually and we'll work on it. People will confuse a few sounds. There's a and a which sounds really similar. If you're not an Enkailuchin speaker, the k is pronounced in the front of the mouth and the k is pronounced back in the throat. Wow, that's amazing. How, how do you teach the sounds that aren't uh, in English? Like you wouldn't find them in English. At the beginner levels, we, we have the audio files, we let the people listen and we just say it and say it and say it because we know they can't produce it until they can hear it. So we'll say it and say it and say it. And then we require them to say it, but we don't mind if they say it badly. So if you say it completely wrong, we just go, oh, right on, high five, good job. A lot of high fives in my class when we were allowed to have high fives. On Zoom, I do high fives too. And then I'll do, I have little tricks, like when I'm trying to pronounce a word like which is a if you tilt your head back while you're pronouncing it, and I'll get, I'll tilt my head back and I'll point to my throat and I'll say, and people will do that and I'll look at them and I'll give them a look. If you don't tilt your head back, I'm a bossy teacher, I'll just give you a look. If there's still difficulties, we'll have pronunciation workshops. That hasn't happened yet. I have had some students that have had difficulties and eventually they iron themselves out, but it does take that thousand hours. That's actually right. a criticism I've received that, um, that we, all, we all talk like babies. I think, well, yeah, your baby talk, probably talked like a baby too and it was only 300 hours in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm really interested in your language. Can you explain about like your language? And is it part of an, another language group? And also, how many languages, how many different languages are there in uh, British Columbia? British Columbia has 35 languages. Oh. Four of the languages are interior Salish. And my language, the Insokchen or Siilch language, is one of the four interior Salish languages. There's actually seven interior Salish languages, but three of them are in the States, in Washington. And there's another handful of Coast Salish languages. So the exact number is 10 or 12 Salish languages in total. We're all related, but we're all distinct separate languages. They're just as distinct and different as say German and English. They're completely separate languages, but they're related. Like when I hear a Shuswap language, which is our neighboring language, I'm like, man, that sounds familiar, but I can't really make out what they're saying because it's, it's that different. So that's our neighboring languages. It's also an interior Salish. And the other languages in BC, the other 35 that aren't Salish, completely different, completely distinct, not even the same sound system or the same grammar. Wow. But one way we can help each other, which I hope we will begin to do, is once we start making resources in one language, if another interior Salish language, they can use those. 
they could hire a linguist or hire a language trainee and they could translate it more easily because our, our languages are quite related, the Salish languages. There are dialectical differences within Nsilkchen, but at this point, because we only have two dozen or so, maybe as many as 50 fluent elders remaining, we don't focus on our differences. We focus on our similarities. So we're focusing on the 95% that is exactly the same in all of our languages. And we try not to argue anymore because that's become a, what they call a politics of distraction. When you, you argue about, oh, well, my dialect is completely different from yours. So I don't want to learn from you as a teacher because you'll give me the Northern dialect. I think now we're all starting to come together as a nation and realize it's a language. And most of our recordings are done from one elder who happened to speak the dialect of her family and her community, but we're happy to learn from her and we'll incorporate as much as we can from our own particular dialects because people get attached to say, like in the North, they say the color red is chach and in the South, the color red is quill. So if I say quill in a class and there's a Northerner there, they're like chach. And then we all laugh and then we all say chach and we're happy. We're just happy to have that difference come in. I've seen this happen before where people have argued and that was really debilitating. We would spend way too much time. We'd waste time arguing about the differences instead of saying, let's learn quill and chach. They're both good, really good. The time for arguments are over. And right. if I have a few minutes left, I feel like I should introduce myself properly in Nsilkshin and talk about the deep spiritual importance of the language for me. Please do. Is to me, Steen. Nahums near kinch me penwishin. Us tali ha ha in coquiltentit, Us tali ha ha us hat sticks to quiltet, coo me penwishin, Us coo in quen quenamist me has sticks to quiltet. My name is Imlauch, and ten years ago I moved here and I didn't speak a word of Nkailachin, and I moved here to learn my language and to learn my ways from my people. And the one thing I have learned is that the more I know, the more I have left to learn and that our language is absolutely sacred and important to me and important to all of my people. We are asking for help from our elders and from everybody out there listening. Help us learn our language, help us do the right thing, help us do this in a good way. If we're making mistakes, come and help us. The time for argument is long past and these are my words. I hope what I have to say is of some help to some people who are also working to work, to learn our languages and become fluent speakers. And if I inspire one person to put aside what they're doing and become a fluent speaker, I just wanna let you know from the bottom of my heart that you can do this. You. Take what you need to do, take your grizzly bears and take your knowledge keepers and gather your strength around you. And you go hiking and you go to the water and you can do this. I have done this 
and I'm helping other people do this. And if I can do this, and I'm just a little powerless person, you can do this. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. That was awesome, awesome, beautiful, well said, beautiful language. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of Legacy Hope Foundation and the Indigenous Languages Podcast Project that we're working on for your contribution and your time. I really, really appreciate your time and for spending this hour with us to talk about your language recognition. Yeah, you're welcome. And you're right, Gordon, when you said as you get older, you get funnier. You're, you're right. Like, the older I get as a teacher, I get more bold. I get more able to just say it like it is. Right. Yeah. You're, you're make, more comfortable with who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I make way more dirty jokes in the language now. Like, I'm like, I should like to shock my students, and then they get to know me, and then we try to shock each other. And like, Oh, that was a good one. Oh, that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, my grandfather, he was a serious man when he was young, and everybody was kind of scared of him. And, uh, you know, and then as he grew older and older, he became funnier and funnier, and, you know, he'd tell jokes, and he'd play jokes on people. So it is it is the way it is, I guess. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. We'll be getting back to you anyways, for sure, um, Michelle. And uh, I'll have to send you a couple more documents and that for uh, for you to sign and so that we can, you know, give you a bit of an honor area. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Um